This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Yes, I'm here. Really good to be catching up with you this afternoon here on the Country Hour. And in the lead up to the state election, what are the, some of the key things that are on your mind, those key issues? I would say uh, water would have to be up there. It's been a pretty long run of dry seasonal conditions and access to water. It's got to be one of them. Um, maybe a shortage of seasonal workers. That's certainly been topical in the last year and is not going anywhere in 2021. But also, energy and climate are shaping up to be talking points and issues in the lead up to this next state election. And there was quite a lively state election energy debate held in Perth yesterday. And you'll get a sense of that um, debate and some of those issues that were raised shortly here on the Country Hour. You'll hear from the Energy Minister, Bill Johnson, uh, Liberal opponent, David Honey, and also the Greens MP, Tim Clifford. Because obviously there is a big, clear difference here this time round, with the Liberals last week unveiling a hugely ambitious policy to green the state's economy. You'll hear that debate just before news headlines at half past 12. And today you're in for a treat because you're going to get the chance to walk in Shane Wishart's shoes. In fact, you might think Shane has one of the best jobs in the world. Now, he calls himself a farmer, but not the conventional type of farmer. Shane is a professional seed collector. Yeah, that's why I sort of say I'm farming the bush because I'm wanting to I'm wanting to look after it so that I can come back to it and get it again in the future. I want my patches to grow and expand. If you come out here and you take too much seed, that patch will die out. You'll meet Shane after half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Seven past 12, you're tuned to the ABC right around Western Australia. And Western Australia's Gascoigne region will soon be home to one of the largest medicinal cannabis facilities in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's bringing plenty of jobs with it. Elite cannabinoids recently received approval to cultivate and process a wide range of cannabis cultivars at an undisclosed location more than 800 kilometres north of Perth. Sebastian Cox is the CEO of the company and believes this part of WA is the perfect spot for this project. Well, the gas going does have some of the highest levels of solar irradiation in the world. You know, I think Baja, Mexico is up there, but the gas going really does well and cannabis really does like high levels of light each day. So that's one of the reasons. I guess it's also the particular place we're looking at is quite isolated and from a biosecurity standpoint, that's quite good. We don't really want pesticide or insecticide drift from a neighbouring property. We've got security of water and we've got lots of expansion capability. So it it ticked quite a few boxes. It's probably not your first place. You know, lots of people think down south and, you know, build a big greenhouse straight away, but maybe it's not necessary. I understand there's probably some sensitive information that can't be disclosed, but what can you tell us? 
the facility itself is pretty big. The first phase will have 46 hectares for cultivation. It'll have an on-site pharmaceutical manufacturing facility, offices and on-site accommodation. The facility will be able to serve the needs of patients all across Australia and we will have additional capacity to cater to export markets as well. When you talk about that 46 hectares, can you approximate how many plants that would be? Well, generally you're looking at around 5,500 plants per hectare on I think a 1.8 metre spacing. So yeah, the numbers would stack up pretty quick. How does that put you in um, stead compared to competitors across Australia? Well, I think because we're doing it outdoors and we haven't gone for a Canadian-based model where we've tried to spend a whole bunch of money on greenhouses, we should be able to set up an operation that's pretty sustainable and pretty resilient over the coming years. So whilst we do have size, we also won't be forced to do other things that incur a lot of costs along the way. Now, if we look at the development of the facility, how many jobs do you think will come out of this business? For the region, it should be pretty significant. It won't be as big as, say, the Lake McLeod Salt operation, but once we're operating at full capacity, so the 46 hectares, we'll need about 40 full-time staff, and they'll do all sorts of tasks from corporate roles to growing, harvesting, extraction, formulation of medicines, logistics, security. You know, we'll probably also need ancillary support as well from the local community for other roles and, you know, supply chain. And as we also do have the option to expand into more land as well. So, I mean, if everything goes well and we exceed our 46 hectares, we could well be in the vicinity of employing 60 to 70 people in five years or so. Well, that's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I think so. It should be, um, should be a good win for the region, I think. Now, you did just touch on being outside the crop. Now, the Gascoigne region has some of the best growing conditions in the state and a lot of sunshine. So that mean you can move away from hydroponics? It does. So hydroponics is probably one of the most common methods for growing cannabis around the world. It's well suited to indoor and greenhouse setups and many people have really good results with it. But like you said, we won't be going down that path. We see, especially in more mature markets like Canada, that consumers and patients prefer organic grown cannabis and we'll focus on organic and regenerative methods. You know, the whole aim is to increase nutrient cycling and carbon content within the soil. And if I can leave the piece of land in better condition than we started, it's a pretty good outcome. Now, you mentioned the manufacturing would be done on site as well. What's involved in taking it from plant to a final medicine? A fair bit, actually, but on a very basic level, it would have a lot of similarities to, say, making whiskey from corn. But instead of pulling the sugars out of the corn for fermenting and then distilling, we'll be pulling the cannabinoids out of the cannabis flowers. And then we have the option to refine the extract doing a short film distillation process to get a single compound if it's required. That gives us the option to either sell the extract direct to overseas or formulate into a final therapeutic for Australian patients. If we look at the project itself, where are you up to and when would we expect seeding to start? Yeah, so we have our local building approvals already and all things going to plan, we could start construction in six months. Build-out phase might take a year and then another six months of commissioning and auditing. So realistically, we'd like to think the facility would be commissioned and fully operational in two years. I mean, COVID might add some uncertainty around that with regards to our time frame and the supply chain, but so far, Mark McGowan's done a pretty good job of protecting WA industry. So hopefully that all sticks to plan. 
And you guys are all ready to go or do you have to raise some funding as well? Yeah, we're right in the middle of a, of a fundraising campaign at the moment. So, I mean, we were only issued our licences probably mid-January and, you know, it's been a four-year process so far. So, lots of work's gone into it. So, it's good to see it start to get some traction and hopefully get off the ground. That is the CEO of Elite Cannabinoids, Sebastian Cox, speaking with James Liveris. 13 past 12, and I wonder what you make of all this. Are you sold on medicinal cannabis after hearing those plans? Very big plans for the Gascoin region. I wonder if you think it has scope. Share your thoughts on text. Let me know what you're thinking on 0448922604. One person who thinks this industry has huge potential is Will Chapman. He's a senior analyst at Market Research Group, Ibis World. Yeah, so there are significant growth prospects for medical cannabis manufacturing in Australia. Obviously, the government only legalised production and cultivation of medical cannabis products in 2016. So the industry is still in its youth phase. A lot of companies are looking to basically establish operations and get the infrastructure set up so that once some of the barriers to consumer access come down or become more familiarized with the general public, that they'll be there to supply and capitalize on this opportunity. When you look at that growth, is it possible to estimate with a a dollar figure of the growth in revenue? So our research suggests that over the next five years, medical cannabis manufacturing can be about a $575 million industry. It is a significant opportunity, especially because Australian producers are currently also looking to access export markets, as right now... Um, One of the main roadblocks to local sales is that the TGA has still reviewing um, locally produced goods and has not registered any for local sale. So local producers are looking to supply export markets where the local regulators have had more experience reviewing and processing cannabis-based medicines. Does the domestic market rely on, I guess, how liberal the Therapeutic Goods Administration is? That's largely the case, yes. Um, the, the TGA recently downscheduled products containing CBD only. So those are now Schedule 3 items that can be accessed through at pharmacies over the counter with a pharmacist's advice. However, there are no currently listed products on the Register of Therapeutic Goods that allow medicines to be supplied legally in Australia. So patient access relies entirely on such products overcoming that regulatory barrier by demonstrating that they're safe, effective, consistently formulated, and so on. What is the playing field in Australia looking like? Is there a lot of them, or is it only a small bunch that have recently received approval to cultivate and process? So currently, there are about 30 companies that have approval and are looking to sort of establish and expand their operations. Quite a number of them are publicly listed companies that are um, raising money on equity markets. So they expect that there will be a substantial market for these products once 
these sort of regulatory issues are worked through and that um, these products become more accepted in the marketplace by consumers and by medical professionals. And if you were to look at the success of this market in other countries, say Canada or America, is it a lucrative industry? Uh, It does appear to be quite a lucrative industry. I think that goes a long way to explaining the sort of rush of interest in it with so many companies seeking to sort of establish uh, manufacturing operations and get themselves sort of as the first arrival to the market because that can have significant benefits in terms of you know consumer product recognition, gaining that sort of loyalty and familiarity in the market. So everyone sort of wants to be first. So I guess in the next five years is really watch this space. Yes, exactly. It, it's, the upside potential is substantial. Will Chapman, he's a senior analyst at Ibis World, speaking with James Liveris about the potential of the medicinal cannabis industry, which, well, Will thinks could be worth around $575 million in Australia in the next five years or so. You can read more on this story. It's online for you now. Just make your way to the ABC Rural Facebook page and click the link to the online story and have your say too, which is what Stephen has done. Stephen says, hopefully cannabis use will be widespread for medicinal use, but not controlled by the big pharmaceutical companies. Cannabis use also needs to be decriminalised, according to Stephen. And Rowan says, yes, it's illegal for everyone else. Makes no sense to me. Have your say on the ABC Rural Facebook page or text through 0448 922 604. 19 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. News headlines and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Gee, there is a bit of rain about and thunderstorms and hail in some parts too. The Bureau of Meteorology going through all those details for you right around Western Australia just after half past 12. First up though, if you are eligible eligible to vote, if you are of the age, well then uh, you're probably not hearing anything new right now. You are going to the polls in just under a month. And the issues of energy and climate are likely to be one of those issues right at the front of your mind. The issues are also an area of clear difference between the major parties after the Liberals last week unveiled a hugely ambitious policy to green the state's economy. Now, that basically provided the context for quite a lively state election energy debate yesterday when Energy Minister Bill Johnston went toe-to-toe with his Liberal opponent David Honey and Greens MP Tim Clifford. Afterwards... Daniel Mercer caught up with all three to press them on the main issues, starting with the current State Energy Minister, Bill Johnston, obviously representing Labor. We are already very ambitious in fighting climate change and we've spent the last 20 years calling for action on climate change. The problem with the Liberal Party is you just can't take it seriously in this policy. Uh, It's not a genuine policy and uh, it's too big a risk for the people of Western Australia and it shows the inexperience of Mr Kirkup. David, the Minister's obviously making some pretty big charges against the policy. Does he have a point? Look, absolutely not. We're committed to this policy and this isn't based on a whim or based on polling 
uh, you know, during the COVID crisis. This is based on the fact that we genuinely believe this is the pathway to deliver lower energy costs to the people of Western Australia, but also to meet the expectations of the people in Western Australia that government will show leadership in moving to that zero carbon economy. Tim, what do you think? I mean, the Greens have obviously been long, very strong advocates of a switch to renewable energy. I mean, 100% renewables by 2030 was a policy that you mentioned in 2017, and I believe that's still the party's policy. So what, what do you think of the respective positions of the Liberal and the Labor Party? We've been pushing the Labor Party last year, asking a lot of questions around their targets, and an aspirational target is not legislated, so it doesn't require anything. It, it pretty much lets the polluters get off the hook when it comes to reducing their emissions. And for us to be able to move towards 100% renewable energy or to decarbonise our economy, we need a legislated target. I welcome the, um, the fact that the Liberal Party have put forward a policy so it's allowed for this debate, like we are up on the stage today, to, to challenge these ideas. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we're going to move to 100% renewable energy or net zero, net zero must cover the entire state and it must include the phasing out of LNG and a transition plan for those workers. So I just make the point that uh, we have got a plan to decarbonise the southwest integrated system. It's been carefully worked on for two years with the best energy minds in the state. The idea that nothing's happened is because the Liberal Party hasn't noticed what's been happening. I wish they had got on board before, instead of criticising the government for our energy transformation strategy, they'd supported it. And now coming up with a harebrained scheme that can't work, that would cost $16 billion, it's no point. Hey, David, it, it really does seem, certainly at first blush, that there are going to be significant costs to the state from the Liberal Party's plan. I mean, if you simply take the contracts that Synergy would have to underwrite with wind providers, with buying out the coal contract in Collie, uh, you know, obviously building transmission lines and a lot of connection costs. Is it inevitable that it is going to blow out state debt and put significant upward pressure on electricity costs and by extension prices? No, absolutely not. Uh, exactly in the same way that the government did with Waradaji. You know, these projects are going to be private enterprise projects um, that won't sit on the books in terms of state debt. Um, so that's just a, a, a bit of mythology that's been created. Look, in terms of cost, those coal-fired power stations in Collie are extremely expensive. They're not at the end of their life, but they're not new, uh, and they're being used as swing plants. So their maintenance costs and their operating costs are huge. Uh, as I've indicated, if you look at the independent uh, assessment of what our policy would cost, and you look at what it costs to run those coal-fired power stations, you'd say there's going to be a reduction in costs. So, you know, in, in terms of winding out contracts, you wind out contracts in a sensible way that doesn't incur costs, and, and that's something you have to do. But we do not believe this will blow out state debt, and we do not believe that this will lead to upward pressure on energy costs. In fact, we believe this will lead to downward pressure on energy costs. Now, I'll ask you something I asked you in the debate. How wedded are you and how wedded is the Liberal Party to this policy? If the polls are proved accurate and you don't win on March 13, will you still have this as a policy on March 14 and going into the next term of Parliament? Uh, look, can I say, in terms of the election, you know, yes, it's a challenging uh, environment. Everyone knows we're the underdogs and that we've got a considerable, you know, mountain to climb if we're going to win the election. The reason we've developed this policy is not because, as I said, it's a whim. It's because we believe that this is something that's achievable. And whatever, the, if we're in government, then we'll be moving 
uh, fast to implement this policy. If we're not in government, we'll be pressuring the government on uh, the issues around costs to consumers, the fact that they've got 7% planned in the budget for price increases on top of 20% in their last four years, increasing power costs, we'll be pressuring them to transition this system and also pressuring them to look at other opportunities for new jobs uh, in Collie. Tim, I mean, you joked about it in your speech in the debate just then about how people were asking you whether the Liberal Party is now Green. But, I mean, is there a risk to the Greens that people who might otherwise vote for the Greens could switch their vote to the Liberal Party on the strength of this policy? Not at all. I think the community realises that we need to phase out and transition away from our LNG exports in an appropriate way. And we do have this new reports. Um, you look at the Climate Council, you look at all, the, all these spaces reporting all, where our emissions are coming from. And that's coming from our LNG, and it's coming from um, spaces where we need to make sure that we have a transition plan. Um, and I don't think we're going to have a space where voters are going to be going, OK, um, the Liberals' new um, policy is a Greens policy. I think and I believe that um, people in the community will be able to tell the difference between that. Minister, I mean, what is the Labor Party proposing to do in the electricity system across the state if it gets another mandate for another four years? Well, we've got a detailed roadmap and it actually shows people what we're doing. Can you outline some of the specific sure. steps? So, for example, we're trialling, or we'll be trialling a virtual power plant so that everybody in the community can participate in the electricity market as both a buyer and a seller. We're putting in batteries to firm the system. We're putting in community batteries in suburbs to make take best advantage of solar. We're restructuring the system so that solar energy from rooftops is a embedded part of the system rather than an add-on. We are way advanced on our transition here in Western Australia. People in other states and other parts of the world look with envy at how fast we're moving in Western Australia on our transition. It's unfortunate that the Liberal Party didn't notice it. Are you confident that there will be no marking down by voters who are really motivated by energy and climate on Labor for what they might perceive to be a lack of ambition compared with the Liberal Party and, and the Greens. But the Liberal Party don't have any ambition in this space because they're only talking about a very small component of our economy. The Labor Party is committed to decarbonising the whole state. The Liberal Party are only talking about decarbonising synergy. It's not a serious option. David, this has the appearance of a bit of a Hail Mary from a party that's way behind in the polls... Is that really what it amounts to? Is it a policy from a party that is reasonably confident it'll never have to implement it? Uh, look, I don't think so at all. And look, if we were in government, I mean, I'd probably be the Minister for Energy. And, and look, I, I started talking in the party about this. And in fact, I did detailed presentations to the party six months ago. And really to educate people, because uh, so many people don't understand just the fundamental transformation that's happened in this sector, and to educate them about the art of the possibility. So no, it's not some flash in the pan that's sort of arisen in a little think tank, you know, coming into the election period. This is something we've been discussing within the party uh, and amongst industry uh, people for a, a significant period of time now. You know, yes, we think this is one of our cornerstone policies for the election. We think the people of Western Australia will resonate with this policy, and, and we think they should. This is an ambitious policy that we think heralds the transformation uh, of energy policy in Western Australia. I understand the federal government has been in contact with the WA Liberal Party to express perhaps some misgivings it has about the policy and that it's made it pretty clear that it would be willing to essentially 
bag the policy out if push came to shove. Will you stay committed to this policy if it brings you into conflict with Prime Minister Scott Morrison and your colleagues in Canberra? Uh, look, we're taking this policy into the election and we're putting it before the people of Western Australia. So, you know, they can have their view. And can I say, Western Australia is different to the East Coast. The East Coast is much more uh, influenced by um, coal energy, so that's a much part, larger part of their market uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. You know, so their dynamics may be different, and obviously in Queensland it was a significant issue, but it's a policy we're committed to here. And Tim, any last remarks from you further to the debate? Yeah, I'd just like to say that we were the only party uh, in this term of Parliament. Um, think the first party to try and uh, to attempt to legislate a net zero emissions target by the year 2040 and 100% renewable energy by 2030 and the feedback I got from the community and, and industry was that's where we need to be headed so uh, look at this space and you know when we look at where these targets lie it must be a whole of economy approach when it goes it comes to decarbonising and we need to have a legislated target just like the Greens have always stood for since 2013. Greens Energy Spokesman Tim Clifford ending that panel discussion which also featured State Energy Minister Bill Johnston and Shadow Energy Minister David Honey and the reporter Daniel Mercer. Uh, Talking about one of the key issues, I guess, in the lead up to this state election, energy and climate, probably one of the areas at the forefront of your mind. And for Bob in Ravensthorpe, water is on his mind. And Bob's asking to get some politicians on either side to explain why a sheep farmer's operation is more important than a cropping one. State water should be available to both, not just inefficient sheep farmers, says Bob in Ravensthorpe, referring to the fact that, you know, those community dams in those water deficient areas, farmers can draw from that for livestock, so just animal welfare, but they can't draw on it for spraying if you need that water in a cropping setup. A good idea, Bob. I think that might be on the agenda for another debate on the country hour on another time. Thank you for that. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text if you've got something to say. Twenty nine to one, Jonathan Beale is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The WA Liberal leader Zach Kirkup says it's important not to preempt the outcome of an inquiry into Crown Perth's suitability to hold a casino licence. The government backed the Gaming and Wagering Commission's recommendation for an independent inquiry into Crown Perth after an inquiry in New South Wales. The inquiry in New South Wales found Crown was unsuitable to hold a casino licence in Sydney and revealed years of money laundering through Crown Perth. The Community Services Minister has dismissed accusations the state government booked a group of homeless people into a Perth hotel. Perth City Apartment Hotel owner Eddie Camille says guests arrived after authorities shut down Fremantle's tent city in late January. He says he understood the government would pay for their accommodation, but Simone McGurk says activists supporting the homeless people were responsible for the booking. And Western Australia has recorded no new cases of COVID-19 overnight. There are three active cases being monitored by the Health Department. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you so much, Jonathan. 28 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Just before news at one, off to Catanning today for the results of the sheep market. Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices for you. And in just a moment... Off to uh, the Murchison and taking a look around uh, just out of Kew, going to Kelly Station, which has had some lovely rain in the last couple of weeks or so. Ross Ariti 
we'll celebrate with you very shortly here on the Country Hour. And the Murchison River is running again. It does run sort of once a year, probably. That's sort of um, historically it's done that. It is running right now and it is something special to see. And Bob Porter will tell you what he can see from his place, which is just near the banks of the river. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Noel Pusey with you today. Noel, there is a bit about there's, what, damaging winds, large hailstones and heavy rain, and it's for quite a big part of Western Australia. Do you want to start in northern and eastern parts, Noel? Uh, okay, all right. Well, in the north and east, uh, showers and storms through the Kimberley and the uh, the Pilbara today, and then we've got this deep trough that stretches from the and then Pilbara down through the central and eastern Gascoyne towards the uh, eastern South Island Division, the western goldfields, and uh, ends off off the coast uh, near Esperance at the moment. So that that quite likely that we'll have showers and thunderstorms right down that trough this afternoon. In fact, they're already uh, they're already um, developing through there at the moment, and uh, uh, we'll see some quite gusty winds and damaging uh, with possibilities and damaging uh, gusts at times and in the hail and the uh, heavy rainfall as well uh, really really through anywhere south of about um, Leonora Laverton uh, and and uh, that includes the Esperance area and eastern parts of the South Land Division including the eastern wheat belt eastern Great Southern and the far eastern parts of the south coastal district also the southeast coastal district and the western gold fields there so um, fairly big area but it's uh, quite quite warm through there at the moment and uh, still there's enough moisture around to to create this thunderstorm activity that you could pick up some heavy falls if you're underneath one of those storms today and also even the chance of some hail as well so uh, not uh, not particularly pleasant but it looks uh, reasonably uh, good for conditions to to um, to have that sort of effect uh, through this afternoon and evening, but it should ease off again. Um, further to the east of that uh, at the moment, the very high conditions through the uh, the Euclid today, some temps up near 45 degrees and, and uh, with the northerly winds there, there's uh, an extreme fire danger today through there. It's likely to go around to a southwesterly change as the trough moves further east during tomorrow and, uh, again, a very... Very decent cool change moving through through the afternoon, so uh, strong and gusty southwesterly winds causing probably an extreme to catastrophic fire danger through there tomorrow. We look a little bit further to the west here. It's been a little bit cooler in Perth at that trough now inland from the, the west coast and uh, similar for much of the west coast there. We have a cold front approaching the southwest at the moment. Um, it'll come through in the overnight period and really stretch from somewhere near Cunderdon across to Esperance uh, through the overnight into the early morning period. The only fairly light falls inland, I think, but the brief chance of some showers uh, uh, overnight uh, through through sort of generally southern and western parts of the, um, the central wheat belt, but also through the Great Southern and uh, possibly slightly heavy falls along the south coast as the front moves through. The, the main effect will be a cooler southwesterly change in the wake of that front and we'll see a new ridge develop over the next few days along the south coast with a high move into the bite on Saturday. So the wind's initially southeasterly uh, uh, and uh, southeasterly along the west coast and southwesterly along the uh, south coast uh, for the next couple of days, but starting to move around to the east as the, the high develops in the bite. All right. Can you take a look a little further ahead then, Noel? Yeah, well, there's this um, over the next few days, really, the, the, the trough moves east, the the ridge develops in the, along the south coast in the wake of that front as well, and uh, yeah, clear conditions of southeasterly winds, and uh, generally, uh, yeah, no no rainfall throughout except for perhaps just one or two early showers along the south coast uh, in the wake of that front uh, during Thursday. But then it clears up fairly quickly, and yeah, it starts to warm up once again, and uh, trough develops slowly near the west coast over the 
the weekend into Monday and Tuesday, and uh, we're back into quite warm conditions by by uh, sort of early part of next week. And Noel, do we usually get Western Australia usually get this sort of system, um, you know, once or twice during the summer period? Oh, that that's just a very common sort of scenario, really. Uh, trough quite a deep trough becomes active at times and that's what we're seeing today and then the trough moves east under the influence of this cold front moving from the west that's pretty much our summer pattern uh, but it, the, the fronts are starting to become a little bit more significant as we uh, as we head towards the end of the, the summer and uh, yeah so it's not that sort of unusual but uh, it's quite often that we have sort of showers and storms possibly severe in the afternoon evening through through the trough as it moves east uh, yeah so I wouldn't say it's unusual. All right and let's uh, recap those warnings then for this afternoon. Okay this afternoon's warnings is fire weather warnings for the, the Euclid today there are strong wind warnings for the west coast from uh, basically north west cape down to Calberry and then uh, Along the south coast, from uh, uh, from uh, sort of Cape Lewin, uh, well Cape Lewin area around to uh, Cape Natchez area around to uh, Bremer Bay, ahead of this cold front moving through for the overnight period. Great, thanks for the wrap. No, appreciate that. It's twenty two to one, and Richard Hudson is here with a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah, again, most of it happening up in the northern and eastern forecast districts. Uh, kicking off in the Kimberley, Anna Plains eight, Bidjidanga seventeen over two days. Drysdale River Station 9, Fitzroy Crossing 13, Columbaroo 27, Margaret River Airstrip had 5, Mount Krause 20, Trouton Island 45 and Truscott had 38. In the Pilbara, nice to see rain continuing there. Cheela Plains 37, Coolawanya 17, De Grey 5, Karajini North 6, Mount Florence 17, Red Hill 19 and Yaline had 11. And then in the Gascoigne, Dairy Creek we don't hear from very often. Dairy Creek had 32 mils. It's about, it's almost 300 k's east of Carnarvon. That's uh, probably how you can picture it. Dalgetty Downs had 10, Dulgunna 9, Mount Padbury 15 and Ned's Creek 11. Nothing recorded in the interior, but a bit around in the goldfields. Leinster 10, Leonora 23 and Weibo had 12. Nothing in the Euclid district or out on the islands. And then in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, hardly anything at all, nothing at all, literally, in the Central West, Lower West and Southwest. In the Southern Coastal Region, the most was two mils at Hopeton North and Munglin Up. In the Central Wheat Belt, Grabal had five, Moorine Rock six and Noongar eight. And then in the Great Southern Region, Desert Fringe and Hyden both had eight. They were the only ones that had five or above. Thanks for that, Richard. 21 to 1. And just before 1 o'clock today, off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market with Tracy Kilner. And as you know, it's been very dry in the Murchison for years now. But at Kelly Station, 100 kilometres east of Kew, Ross Ariti reckons the drought has finally broken. Over the past 16 days, he's had 170 millimetres of rain and overnight, there was more. We had 35, but I don't know what's happened in the west. I've got a gauge I put in there yesterday by chance and I can't get out there. I just went down the road and had to come back. Is it too boggy? Too boggy, yeah. Water across the road and my main driveway, I just go down. Yeah, we don't want to do that because you'll stuff your roads up, won't you? Because there's a fair bit of water in your soil profile. You've had a lot of rain over the past fortnight. Oh, we have, yeah. And there's water still. I went for a drive down the boundary yesterday afternoon when I put the rain gauge up 
and the country there is magic. There's still water in the paddocks, in the actual creeks are, are running, and the um, paddocks, they just look unbelievable. And it's a green pick coming up, and it was up because we had another run there a couple of days ago. But, um, yeah, this one here is just going to fire the country up. So have you added up how much rain you've had, for the say, for the year, the calendar year, Ross? No, I've only added up the last 16 days. Yeah, and that's at 170 mil. Yep. Yeah. We have heard that the Murchison River is uh, flowing. You're in the catchment for that there, aren't you? Yes, but we, I can't get well, – I don't go that way. I go through Pindar, but I don't know what's happened there um, after last night. This rain came at uh, 2 o'clock this morning. Was it a heavy fall? Yeah, it lasted for three quarters of an hour. Glorious. Because been... I got up at the, uh, the tin roof, so I made myself a cup of coffee and just listened to it. Yeah, there's nothing else to do, is there? That's it, yeah. <laughs> I want to take you back to November last year. You made a bold statement on the Country Hour, Ross. I did. I said it would definitely rain. And how did you know? Because you're right, it's rained and things are looking beautiful out there west of Kew. How did you know? Oh, look, I go by birds, animals. Um, we've got a few bung arrows here when they um, hide away for a fair bit of time or they come out. In actual fact, this time they were out eating whatever they could get and then all of a sudden we didn't see them. And they tell you it's going to rain. Um, birds do the same. Now, we've got um, uh, mulga parrots nesting already and that's been there. they've been there a couple of weeks. So that again tells me that there's going to be a lot of seed, so everything's nesting. And we're seeing some wattle birds. They're a brown bird with a little white top. I haven't seen them here before, and they're nesting in the tree. Mm. So um, animals are a good guide to tell you what's going on. The country would be looking better than it has done for quite some time, I imagine. Oh, yes, it's magic, yeah. No, absolutely, because we got that in November when we tried to do them camels. I think I spoke to you about mm. them. They all nicked off because um, <laughs> I think we had 25 at the house or something. But at the top end where we went, we couldn't even get through there with the yards. Uh, the rivers were running. That was it. They were gone. Um, no camels. They're gone. Will you All get? Over. Will you get more cattle or anything like that in, Ross? Uh, not at the moment. I think they're far too dear <laughs> to buy in. <laughs> just when yeah. you can afford to to feed them. Ah, uh, there's plenty of tucker here, but yeah, look, we'll just play with what's here, and um, hopefully the camels come back because there's a big market for them. Now that you've forecasted the weather, what do you reckon the next few months is going to bring more rain coming through? Will we get some winter systems eventually? I, I certainly think we're going to get a big winter because we'll get some more rain here tomorrow, Thursday, because that low hasn't finished. But there'll be a good winter because there's a lot of moisture and it'll draw the rain when there's a lot of moisture. Oh, it's wonderful news, Ross. Enjoy. I imagine there's frogs everywhere. Um, and the landscape's turning green. It's really lovely to hear. Thanks for telling us about it. All right. Thank you very much, Joe. Ross Ariti from Kelly Station speaking to Joe Prendergast. A 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And as Joe just mentioned, there's been so much rain in the region. The Murchison River is running. It typically only runs once a year. So when it does run, it's kind of a special thing to see. The Murchison is the second longest river in WA and right now a nice steady flow is moving along the river towards the Indian Ocean. Bob Porter's farm is near the banks of the river at Agena, which is about 100 kilometres north of Geraldton. Now Bob's lived there all his life and he's now 80. 
So you could safely say he knows that river very well. Oh, well, it flows nearly every year. When I was a little kid, Dad used to take us down with a bar of soap when it wasn't too high and we'd get in and have a bath. And he said, don't lose the soap. And it just slipped straight out of my hands. And I was so disappointed. Anyway, we used to have a bath and get sand all over the soap and it was like sand soap, but it used to work. <laughs> what does a river do to the landscape and to the animals and the birds? What do you see? What are the changes when a river flows? Well, it's a salt river. It's salt water comes into it from some of the rivers, but originally, further up, it's fairly fresh water, but it uh, goes brackish here very quickly, but it's still a good water supply for the native animals and birds, particularly. And uh, I've counted a hundred and odd species of birds around here, and, and this river with a few pools for most of the year, it's the only water for them for a many kilometres either way and they really enjoy it. We have swans nesting all the time, ducks and geese and that sort of thing. An arid shrubland river, that's what I call it, because it's in an arid country and it's, uh, if it was a freshwater river in a, in a nice country it would have towns all along it, but because you can't get anything from it it uh, stays, stays its natural way and it's very good for the wildlife. Have you got any livestock here at the moment, Bob? Yes, I've got Dorper sheep, but we had a lot of merinos here originally and they really were run on the river and that's where they got their water and they degraded the river badly, the river area. And uh, most of the river's got sheep stations or cattle stations and that sort of thing, but we destocked the river here and uh, all the grazing lease down around the Galena Bridge area and uh, from about 1975 so it's had uh, nearly 50 years of livestock free. We hadn't run sheep for a long time but we had a fair bit of sand plain country that wasn't suitable for cropping so and the feed was growing on it and so I got some daubers I've only got 600, 600 ewes but that's 1200 when they lamb and that's enough and just a nice little flock. You just turned 80, is that right? Yep. You're still kicking along, obviously, you're doing well. Yeah, I still work, I can still work, but I, I've got to sort of drive machinery and that sort of thing. I don't like working hard physical work, I'm out in the sun on that, but all the machines are air-conditioned, like the loader, front-end loader and the grader, and and I do that sort of work, and I'm, I've got chap chef farmer here, and he's been here 20 years, and. He makes allowance for my age, but he doesn't uh, worry about me and treats me as an equal, which is not real common for blokes of 80-year-old. But we get along good, and we work together, and we just put out a couple of thousand tonnes of lime. He drives the spreader, and I load it with the loader, and we do that sort of work, and we get along good. So you be here for, for a little while longer then? Well, hopefully, I buy machines that extend my working life. Like, I just bought a big loader. And a few years ago, I bought a grader. And they're all air-conditioned, a road grader. And I do fence lines and roads and pick stones and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Agena farmer Bob Porter with Chris Lewis at his riverside property and you can see some of the river scenes Chris has captured of the Murchison 
on the ABC Facebook page. This is the ABC Midwest and Wheatbelt Facebook page. And make sure you do that. Chris is uh, so talented. He's taken this drone footage and it shows you the river just a few weeks ago when it was dry. And then the video transitions to with the river now running. And it is so beautiful to see. So make sure you make time to do that. And just take yourself out of your own little environment and go and check out another part of Western Australia. It's beautiful to see. ABC WA, 11 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. And if you like the bush and you're not a big fan of office jobs, I think you're going to be a little envious of Shane Wishart. He spends about half the year just wandering through forests in Western Australia's beautiful southwest. What is this dream job? Well, Shane is a professional seed collector. Right, well, this little branchlet here, probably, what have we got? About a foot and a half, two foot long. And as you can see, we've got some nuts on here. There's, there's not a heck of a lot. But Behind the foresters and the machines that hum as they work, Shane Wishart follows closely behind quietly scouring the forest floor. He's been collecting native seed from the trees which have been felled during hardwood logging for more than 25 years. Well, we're actually in a logging coop and we're out here to get some jarra seed. This seed here will be going to one of the Alcoa mines and uh, it will go into the Arivich. That's what we're doing here. Some of it may also go down to Boddington to their bauxite mine more than likely you'll end up with our colour. So you camp out here for days on end. You come down, we're in dwell- and just near Dwelling Up. Tell me about the process of the seed collection and what you're looking for. Well, following the logging crews and trying to find the trees that have the good nuts on them, basically, then collecting them up, cut them up into branchlets, and I have a what I call a stripper box. Basically, it's just, a say, a 60-litre drum on its side with a a third cut out of it and a few middle fingers sticking up. Drag the branchlets through there, they fall into the drum. And then from there I take them home, dry the nuts out and extract the seed. Mining companies source their seed from within a close radius of the mine site to ensure the seed is what's referred to as provenance correct, meaning that it's as close to the original bush as possible. Shane collects up to three kilograms of seed on a good day, and spends hours trudging through the bushland in search of his treasure, only stopping when the mercury hits 36 degrees or when the wind kicks up. Um, If it's too windy out here in the logging coops, I have to leave. It just becomes too dangerous. I'm walking around out here underneath all these trees, so you get a bit of wind, the whole tree could come down. Or there may be widowmakers up there which have come down from when another tree's been fallen. It's um, like a lot of things, got to have a little bit of common sense because it's very easy out here to get yourself in trouble. He collects different seeds at different times of the year, but he's very, very careful never to take more than he needs. A lot of different outfits do things in different way. I'm a solo picker. I prefer to work by myself. You have other companies who run crews and they'll have someone they call a spotter. They'll come out and look at different areas of bush and find different types of seed and then they'll send a crew out to harvest that seed. I find 
that way doesn't really suit me and I find that sea can get overpicked that way. I like to consider myself like a, a farmer of the bush, I suppose you'd say, because I need to be able to go back to patches of seed every couple of years and reharvest. Because they're multi-generational, aren't they? So yeah. you might get on one branch th- pods from three different years. So you want to make sure that you're, you're conserving what you've got for, to come yeah. back to later. Yeah, that's why I sort of say I'm farming the bush because I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to look after it so that I can come back to it and get it again in the future. I want my patches to grow and expand. If you come out here and you take too much seed, that patch will die out. It must be pretty rewarding knowing that the product that you're collecting is going to restoring the landscape. Yeah, that's obviously the best part of it. And being able to go back year after year and see see the bush coming back, that was pretty special. Mm-hmm. Can't put it back if I'm not out here getting it. <laughs> and if you listen closely, you may pick up the remnants of a Kiwi accent, although it has started to fade after years of living in Australia. A friend decided that she wanted to come travelling and needed to somebody to come with her. And, well, I was ready for a change, so I came back over here. So I was basically a backpacker when I arrived back in WA and went down to Donnybrook as a fruit picker. And there's a company down there that used to be Southwest Native Seed. It used to be a very big seed company. And they were looking for somebody for about three months' work. I started with them and just basically never stopped. <laughs> when I first started in this game, I couldn't tell the difference between a jar These and days, a Shane camps out in the bush about 150 nights of the year. It's just him, his tools, and most importantly, his ute, which has become his home away from home. Well, this is me, this is me bedroom, basically. Me bedroom, me kitchen... It's just a uh, little box that runs across the width of the back of the ute. It's 1,200 wide. I've got me cooking gear down the other end there. I've got a nice comfy 900mm mattress there to sleep on. So it's a lifestyle job. What I want to know is when you're away, does the wife miss you or does she kick her feet up and go, nah, this is pretty good. I get to watch what TV shows I want, have a glass of wine. Uh, Well, the wife's actually in charge of the telly in the lounge room anyway. (laughs) But, yeah, so I think she's quite happy. Uh, We've been together, what, 25 years or more. So um, I think she's quite happy for me to go away from time to time and give her a bit of peace. (laughs) Sounds like it works well, doesn't it, being away, what, 100 or so days of the year? Seed collector Shane Wishart chatting to Jessica Hayes about his job and lifestyle as a professional seed collector. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for The World Today. The federal government has ambitious vaccination plans for people in aged care homes. Is the system prepared? And sweet relief for Victoria. Lockdown to lift tonight. But a top infectious diseases expert says the state's current quarantine system has to go. They keep talking about cold and hot hotels, which is nonsense. The standard of infection control in Victoria, unlike other states is not the same across the whole system, and that's why we're seeing breaches. The world today, not far away, just after the news at one, four minutes to one, 
18,206 sheep and lambs sold at the Katanning sale yards today. That's more than 1,000 up on last week's figures. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the prices? Hi, Belinda. The yarding comprised majority of store lines selling with demand, while prime lines were keenly sought by processors and feeder buyers. Several pens of quality quality extra heavy lambs were a standout selling to $226 a head. Heavy ewe mutton remained firm to easier on last week selling to a high of $196 while the lighter weights and store ewes gained with demand. All buyers were operating with a large gallery of feeder background grazier buyers in attendance. Very light Weight lambs under 12 kilos carcass weight sold from $20 to $85, finishing up on last week with demand. Air freight weights under 16 kilos carcass weight sold from $70 to $128. The heavier under 18 kilos carcass weight lambs made from $116 to $139. Lighter trade weight lambs gained selling for $132 to $154 and the heavier end of the trade weights made from $150 to $164 a head. Heavyweight lambs returned $179 to $196 and extra heavy weights made from $214 to $226 a head. Young Merino ewes sold from $90 to $155 to processors and from $50 to $120 to restockers depending on quality. Processors picked up crossbred and shedding ewes from $110 to $132 a head. Heavy ewes under 30 kilos carcass weight fluctuated throughout the sale to return from $177 to $196, while the lighter 24 to 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $130 to $196 with a fleece. Medium weight and good boning ewes weighing under 24 kilos carcass weight sold from $90 to $161 a head. Lightweight ewes made from $55 for small poor conditioned ewes up to $108 to the processors. Heavy mature weathers sold from $150 to $216. Lighter weights made from $120 to $142 a head. The young hoggett weathers returned $155 to $190 for heavy weights in a better quality yarding and lighter categories sold from $80 to $156 depending on weights. Young rams sold to processors for $60 to $90 and from $100 to $120 to restockers. The mature and store rams returned 10 to $40 a head. Ram lambs made from 30 up to $142 for the heavyweights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. And it's a minute away from the news at one. And just enough time to let you know that ABES has just released its latest Australian crop report and it estimates the 2020-21 national winter crop is the second biggest ever. ABES estimates winter crop production will be up a whopping 89% to 55.2 million tonnes. That's more than 7% higher than its forecast that was made in December. And the reason is, it sounds like as harvesting has progressed around the country, the yields just kept exceeding the expectations, particularly in New South Wales and also here in Western Australia. Just taking a look at wheat, for example, it's estimated to have increased by 120% in 2021 to 33.3 million tonnes. ABC WA, time for the news. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.